I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun, cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. We are continuing our monthly theme, the return of, wait, what? That's our selection of some really great head-scratching titles that make one pause and ask for clarification, which is just the kind of film that we love around these parts. This week, we are delivering you the oddball superhero offering, screening Ray Dennis Steckler's 1966 cult musical comedy film, Ratfink a Boo Boo. Join us! So, full disclosure, this week's selection was a film that I had to actually wait a number of years to see. I didn't even discover its existence until 2011, when I was listening to the marvelous audiobook by Patton Oswalt, his zombie spaceship wasteland. Do yourself the favor. Yeah, read the book. It's a great read. But if you have the means, the audiobook is him reading it to you himself, and it is just an honest-to-God gas. In the book, Oswald notes that if you shut out all of the weird off-the-beaten-path stuff by being, you know, essentially a snob, you miss out on a number of really, truly fun things. And, well, here, the man says it so well himself, allow me to quote him to you. It reminds me of just how literati avoid genre fiction, or how film snobs sniff at big-budget Hollywood movies or exploitation trash. It's how a lot of musicians treated rap and hip-hop when they first appeared. But avoiding the trash makes you truly miss astonishing moments of truth, 
genius, and invention. If you shut your mind out to science fiction, you're never going to read The Martian Chronicles or The Left Hand of Darkness. If you think murder mysteries are airport garbage, then you're denying yourself The Horizontal Man or The Daughter of Time. If movies begin at Ozu and end at Romare for you, then the subversive brilliance of Death Dream and Rat Finka Boo Boo will leave you in the dust. I mean, come on. We covered Death Dream here on this show. This is speaking to us. This man is speaking my language. And thus, the spark was lit for me, and I began searching for the eponymous Ratfink. And yet, I could never find the bastard in any of my perambulations around this world. Now smash cut, January 2020. I'm walking through a half-priced books with my father, and I spot on the corner of the shelf two midnight movie box sets placed behind two other items as if someone was attempting to squirrel it away for a later purchase. I picked them up and I realized they contained eight extremely out there cult films all done by the same filmmaker and all packaged together. Jackpot. So who exactly was the man who had cranked out such a trove of weirdness? Well, it was Ray Dennis Steckler. Born in Reading, Pennsylvania on January 25th, 1938, he had a love of films from a very early age. He would go and spend Saturdays at the movies with his grandmother, who primarily raised him. He had a unique obsession with both westerns and the serialized Batman and Robin, which would play at the local marquee. According to Steckler, in 1945, he recalls sneaking out at the age of seven to go up the street to the movies by himself, where he would watch all 15 or so chapters of Batman in one sitting. At the age of 15, his stepfather had gifted him an 8mm camera, and with that, suddenly every kid in the neighborhood was drafted by Steckler to be in his productions. His first attempt at movie making was a film that he had about pirates, which led to him almost killing all of his actors, drowning them in a homemade raft. As he got older, he served a stint in the army during the Korean War, spending from 1956 to 1959 doing his duty, where he worked for the Army Pictorial Service as part of the Signal Corps. He would later go on to use some of his GI money to study photography himself. And when he got done with his stint in the service, he left the army with the rank of a sergeant, and he attempted to join the local summer stock productions on the scene in New York. An old army buddy of his, though, a cat named Ron McManus, called him up and said, Hey, you need to come out to the West Coast with me. I can get you a job. I'm working on a movie set, and I can hire you. Steckler didn't have to be told twice. He was going to get his foot in the door. He was going to get a leg up in the business. He finished out his commitment in New York, and he ended up driving across country to L.A., taking McManus up on his offer to be an assistant cameraman for the 1962 Tim Carey film, The World's Greatest Sinner, which is going to be a future episode one day. It's this truly bizarre little B-movie, even for its time. Uh, for the kingly sum, of $50 a week, Steckler would help out wherever he could on set. And he even got put up by Carrie himself. He was allowed to bunk in the actor-director's garage, sleeping with his two dogs. 
Well, on that shoot, McManus ended up having a serious disagreement with Carrie, and Carrie ended up firing McManus from the picture, which elevated Steckler into being the lead cinematographer. He would grouse that his pay remained the same, but Carrie assured him this was the chance of a lifetime and this was going to make him, you know, his first official job. The film ended up wrapping, and Steckler attempted to get involved in the business of show, snagging himself a union card. Well, at least for a very, very brief time, he got himself a gig at Universal as a grip. Now, on a film set, grips are responsible for setting up lighting, rigging, transporting all the equipment around between sets to ensure that the shots can be set up reasonably. It's actually a very sensible entry position for someone who wants to get involved with the cinematography side of film. You're learning about all the things that you're going to need to set up for the camera. As Steckler would go on to tell it, he worked at Universal for almost a week. You see, while on set of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Steckler was attempting to move an A-frame lighting rig around a tight corner between two studios. And while he didn't actually hit the man proper, during his first day there, Alfred Hitchcock himself was almost struck by Steckler toting that equipment. Hitchcock was already notoriously afraid of being injured on set, and after motioning over for an assistant to come with a clipboard, he quickly departed from the set itself. The subordinate then just pointed to Steckler and said, Gate. When Steckler said, What do you mean? The gentleman just pointed and told him again, You're going to walk through it, and you're not coming back. Thus ended the steady union gig. Down, but certainly not out, Steckler soldiered on with random gigs, all while attending Los Angeles Community College where he was studying acting. He got himself hired on by Arch Hall Sr., a man who owned his own production company, Fairway Pictures, and who was trying to get his own son, rockabilly actor Arch Hall Jr., some fame and fortune. Steckler was hired on first to be a prop wrangler on a film for 1962 entitled Ega, which starred Arch Hall Jr. as a boy who's trying to save his girlfriend from a long-lost caveman, the titular Ega himself, played by a then pre-James Bond Jaws actor Richard Keel. Was it a hit? Well, decidedly no, but two things happened from this association. First, Hall Sr. recognized the potential that Steckler had and hired him on to be the cinematographer for his next film. Second, and more important, while working on Ega, Steckler met Carolyn Brandt, and he was smitten. And lucky for him, she didn't think he was half bad either. Steckler was soon tapped to direct Wild Guitar, yet another B-movie starring Hall Jr., all about an aspiring rockabilly teen with big dreams who falls in with the wrong crowd. Brandt would be in the film as well, allowing Steckler to get to know the young lady a little bit better. He was working out the details with Hall Sr., and Steckler kept asking him who exactly is going to play the part of the evil henchman, Stake, telling the producer that he knew this great guy from one of his college courses, a fellow actor named Eddie Rowan, who would be just perfect for the part. The problem, though, well, at least as far as... Paul Sr. was concerned, Rowan was an African-American man, 
and in 1962, Hall Sr. was openly musing that he would not be able to make the same level of cash if he tried to have the film shown on the circuit in the South by hiring this African-American actor. Kinda sketchy, especially since this was a smaller part. But still, Steckler instead was asked by Hall to play that role of stake. So, in addition to shooting and directing the film, he was going to get to act in it as well. He invented a stage name for himself of Cash Flag, and he got to play the heavy. The picture did alright, but it also served to show that Steckler could direct an entire film on his own. Thus, the following year, he launched his own solo project, which he directed, produced, and starred in, under his Cash Flag moniker. He had by this time gone on to now marry actress Carolyn Brandt in 1963, and he cast her, as well as their friends, in what would become considered to be one of the worst films ever made. The incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. It wasn't good. In fact, time has gone on to have it listed as being one of the worst films of all time. Yet it had a carnival theme, evil fortune tellers, zombies, strippers, singing cops, musical numbers, all peppered in there for good measure. Say what you want, but it was absolutely different. It would also remain, as Steckler himself would claim years later, the most he had ever spent on making a movie. $38,000 in total. Steckler filmed the entire film without having a script. He chose relatives and people in the neighborhood to be his actors. He never pulled permits. He never rented locations. He chose instead to film in abandoned buildings for areas including large indoor scenes. He used the family car to get places and to just star in the film itself. He hired non-union workers. He dubbed all of his sound in post. He would freely claim nobody, and I mean nobody, got paid. And when one of the stars didn't speak English and instead had to deliver the lines phonetically, they rolled with it. He couldn't afford a camera dolly, not to worry. Just put the camera on a set of roller skates and push it up the street. Steckler accidentally got punched in the face for real on camera. He had two of his front teeth knocked clear out of his skull. And rather than lose a day of shooting to get the dental work done, he ended up shooting his scenes by inserting two pieces of styrofoam into his mouth to cover up the gap. Say what you want, this is hardcore guerrilla filmmaking. And when it came time to release the film, Steckler found himself being threatened by lawsuit by Stanley Kubrick and Columbia Pictures, who took umbrage at the similarities between the original title of this film, which was going to be The Incredibly Strange Creatures or How I Stopped Living and Became a Mixed-Up Zombie, to Kubrick's famous Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Severely lacking funds, Steckler decided just to tweak his own title. He ended up releasing the film as a roadshow production, and he would often change the title of the film multiple times to get repeat customers to come back as he took it across the country, billing it as being shown in something he cooked up called hallucinogenic hypnovision, which really just loosely translated to a bunch of ushers running through the theater while the film played, all wearing rubber masks and armed with rubber weapons during key scenes to startle audience members. 
Steckler himself used to take part in scares. That is, until he sidelined himself when a frightened patron shot him with a pellet gun. Still, the film made him a little bit of cash, and Steckler was able to keep making features. Steckler did a movie that would end up being his own take on Hitchcock's Psycho, a little picture called The Thrill Killers that came out in 1964, where Steckler once again starred in the film along with his wife Brandt, this time about an aspiring actor and his wife who end up running afoul of three escaped mental patients. It was not well received, but it made money again, at least enough for Steckler to finance this week's film. He was living on the cheap at the time in an apartment with Brandt, and Steckler was trying to come up with what was going to be something that he would consider to be a crime film, something gritty he could use that would be true to life. He had been hanging out at the time with friend and singer Ron Haydock, and he was planning on making some proof-of-concept videos which would essentially become music videos for Haydock and his band, and those would be filler material for some future film product. During this time, Brandt was experiencing some trouble. You see, Steckler would leave to go to work, and then Brandt would almost immediately start receiving obscene phone calls at their apartment. This led Steckler to believe that it had to be somebody in the apartment complex proper, who knew them, who would actually be behind all of this. He could only think of one person who lived there that would know his and her schedule. And so, Steckler and Haydock set the guy up. Steckler ended up miming getting into his car as if he was leaving for work, and he ended up driving around the block and picking Haydock up, and then the two of them proceeded to go to the gentleman's apartment. When they knocked on the door, the guy called out and asked, who was it? And Haydock called out, Western Union. The man came and opened the door, and as Steckler described it, he turned completely white and backed up as Steckler and Haydock walked calmly into the apartment, noting that the phone was off the hook, laying on the end table. Steckler came in, picked it up, and said, Hi, Carolyn. We got him. The calls stopped after that. But that was the incident that served as the inspiration for what would become Ratfink Abubu. At least sorta. First started under the working title of The Depraved, Steckler had ran out and bought $20 worth of 16mm film and proudly announced that he wanted Haydock to be the leading man in this film. Carolyn, of course, was going to be his leading lady in Jeopardy. And in what would eventually be budgeted with $5,000, he would cook up a plot about some hoodlums who started to make obscene phone calls, and then of course it would escalate until they ended up kidnapping Brant's character. And of course, Haydock would have to fight to get her back. It would be gritty, it would be raw, and it of course would have dancing and multiple musical numbers out by the pool. After all, he shot those for Haydock for a reason, we're going to use them. Steckler started shooting in the winter of 1964, filming in his neighborhood, up in Topanga Canyon, all around Hollywood, and around Lemon Grove Park. Much of the action ended up being shot on Steckler's own front lawn and backyard when he moved into a rented house. That is, until he hit a snag. 
he didn't have a second half to the film. He just had the lead up with the obscene phone calls. You see, prior to shooting, Steckler had gone to Columbia Pictures to get the rights to make his own version of Batman serials that he loved so much in his youth. In his mind, he envisioned a fun Batman and Robin story that would also be, of course, a musical. Without any money and essentially being laughed out of the room, it was a non-starter. But the idea to make his own superhero film had always been there. Thus, apropos of nothing, and now having already filmed the first 40 minutes of a crime picture, as far as Steckler was concerned, Haydock's character is going to now walk into a closet and he is going to exit as a superhero, which is going to fundamentally change the story and tone of this picture completely. The film was no longer going to be the depraved. Rather, Steckler had created two new characters, Ratfink and Boo Boo, American heroes based off of one of Haydock's own songs. Haydock, of course, went along with all of this, and I would have loved to have gotten his take on how it must have been and how it must have felt to have Steckler try to sell him on the notion that, hey, you're going to be a superhero now, let alone on how the director went about outfitting him. Perhaps this explains why he was credited under the name of Vin Saxon for this production. Steckler ended up taking Haydock down to the Hollywood Sears and Roebuck, and he put together his dream costume, and I'm using dream in air quotes, for Ratfink. They bought a set of gray, union suit-style long johns, belted black short pants, welding gloves, engineer boots, and of course, a blue ski mask. A cape would later be added with a large letter R sewn onto the chest of the union suit. Boo-Boo's creation meant that minor character Titus Mode would be elevated up to a hero status, and he ended up fashioning the costume himself, which was a set of long pants that were red, red and white striped shorts going on over them, white knee pads, engineer boots, and a red tunic with double row buttons, plus a red bandana for his eyes, and then a red and white striped cowl that had rabbit-like ear protrusions that had lights on the end of them. Remember, Boo-Boo, we only have one weakness. What's that, Ratfink? Bullets. Now having the requisite heroes to thwart the villains, something else seemed to be needed, at least aside from adding in more musical numbers. So, needing something that would tip this into the net, of all the strange Steckler connections that are on this film, we get Bob Burns entering onto the scene. Now, Burns himself these days is rather famous as being a Hollywood special effects and prop master. And what's more, he's essentially an archivist of all of old Hollywood sci-fi and monsterdom. But at the time this film was made, Burns himself was just starting out. Look, it's like this. If you're making a film, 1975 or later, that requires, like, a gorilla suit, you're gonna go with Rick Baker. You're gonna go with that guy to be your ape. But if you needed a guy to show up in a gorilla suit that did a good gorilla before then, any time before then, you went to Bob Burns. Burns provided his 
know-how and brought his famous Kogar the Gorilla suit to be the final obstacle in this picture for our two heroes to contend with. It was tacked on right at the end of the film that already had no script and barely any plot to give it a proper ending. Filming would end up being wrapped in 1965 with a planned release of 1966, which I will again point out, this was completely separate from the growing public love that the public is having for Adam West and Burt Ward's 1966 Batman television show. I'll say this as to the title of this film, as to why it's called Ratfink a Boo Boo, there are multiple stories associated with the why, which makes it all the more frustrating because depending on the interviews you're looking at and the time that you read them, Steckler over the years has contradicted himself multiple times on how the title came about. First, it was said it was a mistake. Then it changed to it was always intended to be that way, which negates the fact that reviews and magazines of the day would print the title in its alternate fashion. Perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. Look, the logical but now deemed apocryphal story was that during the printing of the title cards, the artist hired to do the lettering made a mistake and ended up leaving the ND off of Ratfink and Boo Boo, thus titling the picture Ratfink a Boo Boo. Steckler, prior to this and in the years later, would always proudly boast that on a budget of $25, that's what he used to promote his films as he went from town to town. His being cheap was not at all beyond the pale. It was a badge of honor. So a story where he didn't want to spend $50 to cover the cost to correct a title card, that is not beyond the pale here. Steckler would later go on to say, no, no, the title was selected deliberately, citing that his daughters had called the characters Ratfinkaboo-boo, and he thought that was both cute and sounded catchy, and though he claims the name stuck. I, of course, would be willing to buy that argument, but there are posters that were released and reviews that were sent out to people to watch the film. And there it is in what was sent to them, listed in black and white ink. It says Ratfink and Boo Boo, which does lend itself to support the concept that mistakes meets cheap equals the outcome. Still, if you watch the DVD release of this picture even today, Steckler himself on audio commentary will maintain, I did this on purpose. So I guess we give it to him? Regardless, geez, folks, you've been ever so patient with all of this. So how's about this? We get on to that trailer. What do you say? Integrity 
alike, respected by all world leaders, loved by the multitudes, these masked men carry on in the American tradition of truth, gallantry, and justice for all. We open on a young woman, Mary Jo Curtis, walking through the streets of L.A. at night, and then being accosted by two members of the Chain Gang. Link is played by George Caldwell, and Hammer is played by Mike Cannon. She makes a run down an alley where it appears she has given them the slip, but then she's surprised by a third member of the gang, Benji, is played by James Bowie, who grabs at her and begins to choke her, robbing her in the process and leaving her for dead. We then get to meet the hero of our story, at least by way of narration. A groovy cat named Lonnie Lord is played by Ron Haydock, who wanders the streets awkwardly, holding a guitar by its neck as he walks through the streets. This is Lonnie Lord. Lonnie is a rock and roll singer. Last year, he sold 10 million records. His fans are legion. Lonnie lives in Hollywood, the entertainment capital of the world. It's his town. Everywhere he goes, he carries his guitar with him, because he never knows when he'll be called upon to sing. Lonnie will sing a song anytime, anywhere. Lonnie likes to sing. We get to see C.B. Beaumont, as played by Carolyn Brandt, Lonnie's number one gal, and we get a rocking montage of the two of them together, set to Haydock's actual song, Running Wild, where Lord and Beaumont do all sorts of crazy fun activities. Activities like awkwardly playing basketball, awkwardly playing football, running through a park that's empty, riding a carousel, and, of course, dancing to his awesome jams. Unfortunately, such uncheckered fun has to come to an end. You see, the Chain Gang are hanging out, and they're bored. Worse, they're grousing that they need money, and they're looking for their next big score. Come on, man, let's not sit around here all day. We gotta do something. We just can't sit around. Let's, let's go. Let's do something. We haven't done anything since last night. Come on, what's wrong with you guys? What, do you have anything in mind? Don't just sit around here all day. Let's go and have some fun, anything. We ain't done nothing since last night. Come on, let's, let's go. Let's, let's get on. Let's go and have some fun. Let's, let's go and have some fun. Come on. Let's go and get some money somewhere. Let's do something. Got in mind. I don't know. We gotta do something, man. We need money. Let's let's get some money. Let's go and have some fun. Let's ball it up or something. All right, all right. Let's get out of here. They end up picking a name at random from the phone book, and of course, it belongs to CB. She's now going to be their target for extortion, and they start their grand scheme by first making obscene phone calls to her home. Well, 
at least this film's version of obscene phone calls. Undeterred by some of the rudeness she's receiving, CB leaves the house to go shopping. But she's experiencing some car trouble, and she turns down the offer to borrow her gardener Titus, as played by Titus Modes, station wagon, opting instead to walk to the grocery store, where she is menacingly followed by gang members who never reveal themselves to her. They just follow her around for a good long stretch of time. It's only that evening, when they start calling late at night and banging on the windows of her home, do things actually take on a truly threatening and scary vibe. And in a panic, she calls the police, which causes Benji to run off into the night. We then cut to a swinging pool party the next day, where Lord and CB are barbecuing, dancing, and swimming, all while singing to the song, You is a Rat Fink, and hosting friends. The good times, of course, are broken up by another harassing phone call, and rather than call the police again and tell her beau what's actually wrong, CB instead flees from the house, gets in her car, and drives through L.A. at random, before returning home, where, of course, the gang has been waiting for her. In broad daylight, they beat up Titus as he tries to defend CB from them, and then they shove her into the back of a pickup truck, telling Titus that they'll be calling Lord shortly and threatening him not to go to the police. Lonnie gets over to CB's place and finds a bloody Titus on the front lawn. He does as he's been instructed, though. He waits by the phone, and he strums his guitar, singing to kill time, which gives us the musical number, I Stand Alone. Eventually, the kidnappers call, and they make their intentions known. Lonnie Lord? Yeah, this is Lonnie Lord. Who are you? Man, if you want your girlfriend back in one piece, you put 50 grand in the black case and put it in the garbage can behind 1213 North Highland tonight. Well, that's impossible. I can't get you that much money by tonight. It'll take me at least until tomorrow morning. No! Tonight. Man, it's gotta be tonight, baby. Before dinner. Or she's had it. For good. You got it? All right. So... Logically, Titus and Lonnie excuse themselves to the back room and reemerge in costume as Ratfink and Boo Boo, friends to those who have no friends, enemies to those who make them enemies, and champions of women and children everywhere. They mount up on the Ratfink cycle, and as the surf rock swells, and Ratfink does a lot of majestic posing and standing in the bike's sidecar, they seem to just drive around a bunch of empty L.A. streets at random. They eventually, though, plant a dummy briefcase and follow Benji back to his hideout to find CB when he comes to pick it up. 
The kidnappers end up greedily opening the case, and they're enraged to find that it's just full of comic books. And that's exactly when our heroes surprise them, with fisticuffs ensuing. Hammer, of course, is subdued, but Link and Benji still grab CB again, and the chase continues out into the Hollywood Hills, where the four remaining combatants square off. That is, until they're interrupted by Kogar the Gorilla, as played by Bob Burns, who's escaped from the zoo and has his keeper, Romeo Barrymore, wandering the hillside looking for him. It's here that Kogar decides he's going to take CB for himself. Our heroes end up subduing the rest of the gang members, and then they're forced to give chase to the ape, only to have Kogar beat the tar out of the both of them. But the fight ends abruptly as the zookeeper finally catches up and leashes the beast, before happily returning to the zoo. CB ends up removing Ratfink's mask, and they share a heavy smooch, before we cut to CB, Ratfink, and Boo Boo all riding on the Ratfink cycle, now taking part in a large parade. Waving to people as they pass, all while the narrator talks about their contributions to society. We end up with one last musical number, Lonnie and CB dancing up the street together while Lonnie croons Go Go Party, and then we get to see the entire gang have crazy fun out at the beach, seeing partygoers and Kogar and his trainer grooving to the music, and then we get credits rolling. Look, I can't sugarcoat this. This movie is not in any way good. It's bad, but it can be enjoyed still. Steckler takes Ed Wood on, and in my opinion, gives him a real run for his money in the brazen filmmaking department. That being said, I do think there is some brilliance mixed in with this insanity. And while, yeah, all of what you're getting here is bananas, if you walk into it with the right frame of mind, it can be a strange experience but still be enjoyable. Although, I have to freely admit, it does take a certain level of mental gymnastics to try to roll with the picture, to understand with how this plot seemingly goes from point A to point B and then somehow winds up at point Q. It's abundantly clear that Steckler ran out of steam on his own crime film idea, and then he just threw caution to the wind and tried to make a story he had really wanted to make. It's just without having any indication that our lead character of Lonnie is anything other than a friendly hip rocker, the whole him entering into a closet and stepping out in such a bizarre costume, that's really jarring. Perhaps it's fitting that at about the 40 minute mark, the film completely flips, because that's right around the time that the edibles would be kicking in for some of the more mature viewers who are watching this film. Let's get into the bad. First, by not having an actual script to work off of and basing the first half of the film around obscene phone calls that are interspersed with musical numbers, the fact that you have the last 32 minutes or so of your film where it ends with oddly dressed men getting into fisticuffs with some generic creeps and then transitioning to that boss fight with a gorilla, that all leads to something that is just really hard to take in. For a film that clocks in at only about 72 minutes, the pacing makes it feel so much longer than it actually is. 
Case in point, various walking shots. I mean, CB trying to get to the grocery store, where she's tailed by Link. All that could be used to build tension, but it's so long. And after three to four minutes of just being followed, when we see it doesn't pay off at all, it's just leaving the viewer going, okay, why did I watch that? Or, I don't know, the complete lack of motivation that the characters seem to have. When CB flees the party in broad daylight after receiving one last crank phone call, I get it, she's very upset, but why on earth would you run away from a place that is populated by all these people who are your friends, who care about you, and instead you're just going to run out into the world, into the street, where the very people threatening you are? I mean, in reality, her reaction at night when they're prowling around and banging on her home, that, yes, she's scared, but that should have that bigger reaction, instead of having the panic attack with the small incident. Likewise, when trying to show chemistry between Lonnie and CB, you know, cutesy antics, lovey-dovey ways, we don't really get a lot of that on screen. We get the manic go-go dancing, and we get the weird montages of them doing things together, but there's very little dialogue between the two of them. There's no real indicator of affection. Instead, we get such scenes as the two of them seductively barking at each other. No, you heard me totally right. Comically touted as being filmed in regular vision, which is then explained as being glorious black and white, which, honestly, there's nothing wrong with a film not being in color. What's more off-putting is the various filters that have been added onto the film. The night scenes all have a blue tint. For certain scenes towards the end, we get rose and almost peach-colored tints. Not quite sepia for the rest of the film, which makes what we're seeing seem even more surreal. The fact that the sound recording was all done after the film was shot makes for some really interesting syncing issues, especially when Steckler clearly didn't have the Foley effects available, which leads to some intended unintentional comedy, such as when Boo Boo is attempting to start the motorcycle, and instead of us getting to hear an engine sputter to life, Steckler substituted the sound of a toilet flushing, as it was what was available to him, and as I believe he thought it was funny. Let's talk about some of the good, though. Well, this is clearly a pungent slice of cinematic cheese. Haydock, for a guy who isn't an actor per se, he's at least a very entertaining crooner. And when you put him in the context of 1960s California surf rock, he's not bad. He's charming, he's inoffensive enough in the context of this <clears throat> story, and his music, again, for the time the film was made and compared to the rest of the stuff of the day, it's decent, and it does help us transition from a lot of the awkward filler that Steckler shot. Although that said, I do find it interesting. The song that the character gets his name from, Haydock supposedly wrote the song You Is a Rat Fink for his son, which leads to far more questions, but no matter. It's sort of a head-scratcher that the song about being very accusatory towards a person being low-down and underhanded, that's what was used to name the hero of our film. But you just kind of roll with it. And again, 
it does help that the, the Hepcats would say for the day, the song does swing. Titus Mode is a little awkward here, but he does his best with what he has, which is to play the role of the slower-seeming gardener who then transforms into Boo Boo, a man of action. It's really Brant who saves the picture, no matter how you slice it, both from her stunning beauty and for the fact that she, out of everyone here in this film, is actually a trained actress on set. So, you know, she does things like emotes feelings, happiness, horror. She has more of a complex range of emotion as compared to the men in the film. There's a lot of here that is unintentional comedy, which is just done by way of overacting and is accentuated by the whole concept of the audio being done in post and not matching what's being said or having people's lips sync up to it. This leads to a lot of the jokes not landing, but that creates new pockets of absurdity in the process. For example, when Boo Boo is stopping in the middle of a fight to see if his wristwatch has been damaged, the Ratfink motorcycle, the fact that it takes clearly multiple times to start when they're in the middle of a chase, all of that is gold, and clearly that was not something that they wanted to just have happen. Now, I will admit, the inclusion of Kogar the Gorilla is completely ludicrous, but so is the rest of the film. So looking for logic in an illogical situation, it's just an excuse for futility. And that being said, the fact that the trainer lost him somewhere out in the California hillside and that he just shows up to menace our heroes and villains at the same time, it is sort of a unique way to cap it all off. I particularly like the fact that he beats our hero up and then is just sort of found and led away by the trainer. Like, that's it? So the hero doesn't even really save the day. He just sort of gets his lunch handed to him and then he gets to go home with his gal anyway. It's interesting that Ratfink and Boo Boo would be invited to participate in a parade of any sort in this film. I mean, they only interact in costume with CB and the criminal gang, and that's it. They're not really out with the public at large. I would have loved to have been a spectator at that parade that Steckler clearly crashed with his camera just to see the crowd's reaction to these two men as they come cruising on by. At the end of the day, though, I do think Oswald was right with his assessment. There is a sort of brilliance to all of this. It's a fever dream of genre ideas all smashing together without any real planning, skill, or money behind them to grind away those rough edges and leave us with something instead that needs to be explained and experienced just to be believed. I mean, look, it won't be for everybody but it accomplishes the task of at least being interesting, and that keeps people hooked in by its sheer audacity. 
leaving those of us, at least in the right frame of mind, with a sense of, I don't know where this is going, but I want to see how this ends. And in my opinion, that makes this a cult film that is worth seeing. But you know what? That's okay. Not everyone thinks the way that I do. And while that's perfectly alright, that's exactly why we have such things as the sidecar. Joining us again in the sidecar this week is the marvelous Peter Martin from Ninja News Japan, Chunk McBeef Chest, and of course, the Velosa Podcast. Peter was courteous enough to go into this film completely blind, knowing nothing about it, and then coming back to give us his two cents on Ratfinkabubu, which I think is most impressive. So, without further ado, what do you have for us this time, Peter? A lot of the movies that get addressed here are cheap. And I don't hold that against the movie. I think if you don't have much of a budget for your film, really step number one should be sit down and say, what can we do with the budget we have? And that's an important question to ask because when people overshoot their budget, that's when you get weird things happening in your movie. So I can forgive uh, cheap sets and... It's hard to forgive poor acting. I can, I can forgive poor action scenes because, you know, you take your actors and you do who you get and they have fights. And honestly, real fights aren't coordinated. So if they look real messy, I'm like, well, that's actually in a weird way more realistic. Ratfink is clearly a cheap movie and it falls into a couple of traps. And the first one is very long driving or walking scenes. And this goes back to a lot of movies. I think it was when I was watching a lot of MST3K where they would make fun of the driving bits. And now anytime I see a long driving scene, it's like, well, we filmed it. We're going to use it. I don't know if they actually say that in the show, but it is the feeling I have every time I see something. And it comes up again with like fog machines. Like we rented this fog machine. Every scene is going to be foggy. There are a lot of driving scenes and parking scenes and walking scenes in Ratfink. But I could almost forgive that. What I can't forgive is a huge error in the writing. And you might be thinking I'm talking about the significant tone change that happens halfway through the film. The first half, I went into this movie having no idea what it was. So Chris had just sent me the film and he said, watch this. And I said, okay, because I don't want you to hit me again. And I didn't know what kind of movie it was. So the first half of the film is setting up a very serious, very dark crime movie where people are going to stalk someone and kill them, probably for money. These guys are being set up as crazy. Then, in the film, they pick a name at random, and they're going to go attack that woman, and in this case, kidnap her. Then there's the tone shift where the lead character turns into a superhero with a very badly constructed costume, which again, I could kind of forgive if the jokes actually paid off, but most of them don't. That's actually not the problem I have with it. 
I didn't think the second half was funny. I didn't think the jokes were any good. I thought they could have been written better. But again, forgivable. They kind of decided to do that. That's what they did. Whatever. The problem I had more than anything else was with one moment of writing. And this may have just been a continuity error, but they kidnapped the girl. They've chosen her at random. They take her away. And then in the next scene, they call the hero, the lead, and talk about how they have the girl. But there's no indication of how they figured that out. How did they know that she was his girlfriend? How did they figure out that he was the one to call to get, I assume, ransom money? They just flip from one moment we're kidnapping a girl to the next moment. She doesn't, they're not married. This is his girlfriend. So they live in separate houses. There was nothing shown to indicate that they're in a relationship. There were no pictures on the wall that they showed. Like, because he's supposed to be recognizable. He's supposed to be a rock star. They could have just taken a moment and had the kidnappers look and go, hey, here's our victim with the hero with his arm around her. That must mean they're together. Now we can try to find his contact information and get our ransom money. But they didn't do that. They skipped directly from kidnapping to phone call. And that bothered me for the rest of the film. And it was unforgivable to me because how did they find his contact information? How did they find out that they were actually in a relationship? They could have even taken a moment and had her tell them, like I assume a light torture scene, they could have had her tell them that he's the person to call, giving the contact information. But this is poor writing. Now there's poor writing throughout the whole film, but this is poor writing on a level that I find unforgivable. And so for this one fact, if you are actually going to take the time and watch this movie, the spectacle that it may be, please let this bother you as much as it bothered me. I've done a few of these sidecar things, and the ones where I get like this, the ones where I start complaining, you can tell that I was actually distracted for the rest of the film because this one tiny thing bothered me. And the film creators, the producers, the directors, the writers, they might not think it's a big deal. But you know there's someone sitting out there in the world right now seething because how did they find the hero? How did they get his contact information? How did they make that contact to actually progress the rest of the film? As far as I'm concerned, the movie should have stopped at the halfway point. A lot of people may agree because of the, again, significant tone change the movie takes, which is a bit disruptive. But that actually wasn't the problem for me. The problem for me was a logical one and I believe a continuity error made it so that I could not enjoy the rest of this film. That and the big monkey suit, which I thought was just a bit too much. For the record, I would never, ever physically attempt to abuse Peter. He is too decent of a chap. And besides, I find brandishing the gun gets the same level of participation from him when needed, so there's no need to resort to violence. He, of course, is completely correct here. Cheap films do abound in these parts, and as someone who came into this blind, he's clearly touching on the universal theme of these people are not actors, and these scenes themselves are far too long. His bringing up of the MST3K now makes me want to go back and watch this with the phrase refueling repeated in my head over and over again during the montages. The lack of, as he puts it, continuity with the kidnapping as to indicate that CB has either told her assailants who they need to call, or to at least show that they've learned who Haydock's character is, is 
actually very much needed. I would think in this completely unscripted film, a scene where they force her to tell them who to call or have a discussion amongst themselves on how to get a hold of the hero, that would be warranted. At least, easier to do over another walking, driving montage. But no, apparently they have a priori knowledge and they're just gonna go forth. I would agree with Peter's assessment that this is indeed an example of poor writing, but since we know there was literally no writing here, I'm completely willing to chalk it up to just being what happens when one is throwing together a picture on the fly. But it doesn't make his point any less valid. So, as always, Peter, excellent job. So I can hear you out there. Chris, how was this film received? Surprisingly, not as bad as one would initially expect. Understandably, as this was a film that Steckler himself would go on to roadshow, there were not a large amount of professional reviewers to draw upon. But for those who did see it, they were not as brutal as you would expect for this quirky bit of schlock. Variety stated that as an experimental film, Ratfink had some interesting moments and cinematic devices. Unfortunately, though, they were few and far between, not quite enough to keep the viewer's attention fixed. The review, though, noted that the film was actually made two years before the Batman craze hit and ended up praising Brant's performance, noting that she had it to go on and become a bigger star. Box Office Magazine also labeled this as American avant-garde and felt that it would fall in very nicely with what was considered to be the way-out movie-making trend as a bit of spoof entertainment for the day. Steckler did end up getting a lot of mileage off of the Batman popularity, and it would be his most profitable feature film offering to date, because people had already assumed it was a Batman spoof from the beginning. For the day, it was passable, but it was also a different time. I mean, you've seen Peter's reaction to this, and it's more of a typical response that you get from viewers these days, especially people that come across Ratfink without any context. As of this recording, Ratfinkabooboo holds no critical scores if you look it up on Rotten Tomatoes. And it only sits with a 50% rating from the audience, who end up vacillating between loving it for its goofy camp and or hating it for its inane plot shift and its pacing issues. Again, I can only offer up my opinion to you as to what you're seeing. You're taking in something that I feel is unique, historic, and I'm going to crib again directly from that Oswald quote. It's subversively brilliant. So, when you come to see this film, I get it. It's not for everybody. And while I would argue it does provide an unforgettable experience, no matter who sees it, for the right people, this is one of those movies that could become a real bizarre guilty pleasure. And that puts it in the cult film pantheon with such other gems like Ed Wood's Glen or Glenda, Harold P. Warren's Manos, The Hands of Fate, or Louis J. Gassner's Reefer Madness. And again, I think people really need to take the time to go and see this one. Steckler was proud of his film, proud of his friends, and proud of his family who helped make it. 
As the years went on, he would look back on Ratfink and he would comment that the reason he felt his film still worked was in spite of the incredible low budget. It was because he made his movies, much like this one, with the three E's energy, enthusiasm, and excitement, and that helped him make up for some of the obvious flaws. Steckler would go on to make over 25 feature films. He and Brandt would end up calling their marriage quits in 1973, but not their working partnership. Even after that, both of them remained, to their credit, very respectful of each other and spoke highly of their commitment to their craft. As the B-movie scene of the late 1960s and early 1970s began to change and Steckler himself had a harder time financing his own projects, he would begin to moonlight for other work. He shot music videos for bands, famously filming Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit. He relocated to Las Vegas from LA, where he began to diversify his business ventures. He got into shooting adult films, starting first with softcore fare and transitioning into some hardcore work. He jokingly would refer to the 70s as his blue period, but it kept food on the table and it allowed him to both care for his family and still finance his own small projects. He taught film classes at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. He opened a small distribution company and began to run several early video stores in Las Vegas as well, becoming a bit of a jack-of-all-trades for a time. He ended up in the early 80s remarrying, and with his new wife, Catherine, he ended up having two more daughters. And through it all, he never stopped. His timing and his strange relationship to show business often put him in the center of things while seemingly keeping him at an arm's length away from all traces of legitimacy. His stories are fascinating, interacting with a host of people on the scene back in the day. Steven Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock, John Huston, Marilyn Monroe, Arthur Miller, and in true Steckler fashion, if you want to be dismissive of his claims, you can, I guess, but he's just so damn charming and friendly as an individual. And when you listen to him, you realize, what's more, he took work from anywhere and from anybody who had it. He was never a rich man, but he was comfortable, he was happy, and he was appreciative of his family, friends, and most of all, of his fans, knowing full well that he had become a cult icon. Steckler had always wanted to have a chance to work on getting a remake of his first full film, Creatures, done. And in 2008, through online networking, he ended up raising the funds to complete what would be his last project, an extension of the craziness of that first film. Entitled One More Time, it was shot for $3,800 in both Santa Cruz, California and in Las Vegas proper, and it starred the director himself once again using the cash flag persona. Steckler would release the film direct-to-video by way of his website the following year. Sadly, he would not lived to see its release. After filming had wrapped, Steckler returned back to his Las Vegas home, where the director, who had been fighting a losing battle with heart disease, died of congestive heart failure, surrounded by his family on January 7, 2009, at the age of 70. 
His legacy to the world is a strange, interesting, and wacky one, provided by the art that he so enthusiastically created. I argue we are all better off for it. And with that, I say thank you very much, Mr. Steckler. The version of Ratfink Abubu screened here at the LSCE was the 2003 Media Blasters Special Edition release that was put out as part of their Guilty Pleasures line. Proudly proclaiming to be presented in regular scope, black and white, it comes with some marvelous features, including an uncut anamorphic widescreen transfer, interviews with the late director himself all about his career and the making of this film, a director's commentary track, a photo gallery, the original theatrical trailer, and a musical number gallery. This DVD can be purchased today on Amazon for the low price of $14.99, and yes, I will tell you, I think it's completely worth it. However, the Midnight Movie Film Collection, that same one I had purchased, which contains this disc as well as three other Steckler films, that includes The Incredibly Strange Creatures, The Lemon Grove Kids, and The Thrill Killers, that was put out in 2007, and that can be yours on DVD for the low price of $17.97. And I'd have to say, that's quite a bit of cult film bang for your buck. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE on telling you where to buy your films for. We just feel it's important in this day and age to continue to support physical media so that the fine folks who own the rights to this content, the stuff we all know and love, will continue to release it to us. And at the end of the day, isn't that what's really important? Getting more of the stuff that you know and love? Besides, this film is so unique and such a strange experience, if you fancy yourself a fan of all things weird and cult, this is right up your alley. So I say, what are you waiting for? Go out there and get yourself a copy of Ratfinkabooboo today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to again offer a special thanks to our sidecar contributing guest, Mr. Peter Martin. If you are a fan of his bon mots and you enjoy random thoughts and interesting stories, please go check out his work both on Ninja News Japan, Chunk McBeef Chest, and of course on the Velosa Podcast. If you like us, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We've recently been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account with them, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to follow any of the lists that we are a part of to give us a boost in those rankings. More reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and that makes us far more searchable. And then we can share these fine films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. 
as always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, please stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. It's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Goodnight.